Hey, Shanna, did you know that you can purchase audiobooks directly from your local bookstore? Yes. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But with Libro FM, you get to search up your local indie bookstore and support them instead. And if you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to squeeze more reading into your busy life. I constantly have a book in my ear because cleaning the house or exercising is so much more fun while reading. Sign up for Libro.fm and use the code GOODBOOKS to get two books instead of one for the price of your first month's membership. Good books. Good books. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Best Book Club podcast. I'm Shanna. And I'm Jen. And it's already book club again. This month, we read A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes. I can't believe it's already time for book club. Sneaks up on you. Yeah. This month went actually insanely fast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe not for you since you're a million months pregnant. But <laughs> I mean, it's gone both extremely fast and just crushingly slow. <laughs> yeah. That's how it usually goes. Yep. Okay, why don't we start out by giving a little author bio and shout out. So Natalie Haynes was born in Birmingham, England. She has written a children's book called The Great Escape, which won a PETA Proggy Award for Best Animal Friendly Children's Book. So that's pretty cool. I have never heard of that before. No, me neither. But animal friendly children's book sounds fun yeah it's not charlotte's web then that's for sure yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh she's also written a nonfiction book and four novels including this one and she has a new book called pandora's jar women and greek myths coming out so obviously that's right up our alley yes it doesn't come out in canada though until june 29th Duh. Duh. I mean that's soon now but i guess but yeah. <laughs> if you liked a thousand chips keep an eye out for that one uh, while she's not writing books, she writes for The Guardian, and she is also a radio broadcaster, also pretty cool. She is a regular contributor to BBC Radio 4, even having her own show called Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, which can be found on BBC Sounds. And I actually also found it on Apple Podcasts and listened to a little bit. It was really nice on my ears to learn a little bit more about some of the women we read about in this book. And she's apparently also a comedian. But our humor must not match up because I did not find her very funny. Interesting. Yes. Funny. No. <laughs> but I mean, it might also be that British humor thing. I never get it. And I can say that because my husband is British and I also don't get his humor at all. It happens. <laughs> yeah, it's not at all. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's very good. So I definitely recommend still listening to it. Cool. I might have to try it. I love that, like Madeline Miller, she has enough of a background in mythology that I can trust the story that she's telling and feel confident coming away from her writing with a better understanding of the actual myths. Mm -hmm. So just a quick synopsis of the book, just in case any of you are here for the, the non-spoily section of this podcast. This is The Women's War, just as much as it is The Men's. They have waited long enough for their turn. This was never the story of one woman, or two. It was the story of them all. In the middle of the night, a woman wakes to find her beloved city engulfed in flames. Ten seemingly endless years of conflict between the Greeks and the Trojans are over. Troy has fallen. From the Trojan women whose fates now lie in the hands of the Greeks, to the Amazon princess who fought Achilles on their behalf, to Penelope awaiting the return of Odysseus, 
to the three goddesses whose feuds started it all. These are the stories of the women whose lives, loves, and rivalries were forever altered by this long and tragic war. A woman's epic, powerfully imbued with new life, A Thousand Ships puts the women, girls, and goddesses at the center of the Western world's greatest tale ever told. So before we get into the deeper discussion of this book, what are your non-spoiler thoughts about it? I was so excited for this book because after reading both Madeline Miller books, I found myself so interested in Greek mythology. So the idea of hearing the women's side was just exactly what I wanted. And I really enjoyed this book. But one thing that wasn't even this book's fault was that it wasn't the Song of Achilles. You know, yeah, it's true. I had a very hard time separating them, and I couldn't help but compare every part of this book to Achilles. In my brain, I wasn't reading another perspective of the Trojan War. I was reading another perspective of Achilles. (laughs) (laughs) At least it started out that way. By the end, it was it. I had been able to separate it because Achilles wasn't really in it anymore. But (laughs) eventually, you do have to just accept that you're not reading the Song of Achilles. Yeah, yeah. I found that whenever Patroclus and Achilles were mentioned in the book, I was just disappointed because the story that Natalie Haynes is telling is not the same story that Madeline Miller was telling. And I prefer Madeline Miller's interpretation of Patroclus. Patroclus. I love it. Patroclus. Why have I never (laughs) given them a ship name before? Right? Yeah, it's a thing. Patroclus. Yeah, I love it. I never said it out loud until that moment. Well, it's just in my head. I can't believe with how obsessed I am with the Song of Achilles that I've never just come across it. Yeah, there's a whole fandom. It's got to be canon somewhere. Yeah, I'm too afraid. (laughs) afraid. (laughs) Yeah, no. Okay. Overall, I really enjoyed this book. I mean, I'd I'd give it four stars. Despite it not being the Song of Achilles, it was still really great. Cool. I think as somebody who has a little bit of knowledge now going into this book, I agree. Four stars. Great book. If I had zero knowledge, I would have probably thrown it against a wall because you have to know what you're getting into when you pick this one up. And I agree. I also really, really wanted it to be the Song of Achilles and for it to be just Patroclus and Achilles smooching. But (laughs) that's not what this book is about. So just like you, eventually I gave it up. And I mean, it was easy because they were dead. But still. (laughs) Yeah, if you don't have any knowledge at all about Greek mythology, this book will be a bit confusing for you. It's, yeah, it's not the starting place. No, definitely no. But if you already have an interest, try it out because it's actually pretty great. Yeah, it's great. It gives a really good perspective of the Trojan War that we just don't really ever get to see. Okay, so let's get into the book. From this point on, this episode will contain spoilers. Although, if you know anything about the Trojan War, there isn't really a lot to spoil, but the book did hold a few surprises for me. We start out hearing from Calliope, the muse of epic poetry. A poet is asking for her help. Is this supposed to be Homer? I'm assuming so. Okay, I am just going to have to say something here. My daughter's name is Calliope, as I've said like a hundred thousand times on this podcast. (laughs) And I was so confused when I listened to the audio because Natalie Haynes, who actually narrates the book, pronounced it Calliope. 
Now, she is much smarter than me, so I am assuming that in some way she's correct. But it like really raked on my ears every time I heard it. I did a lot of checking to make sure that I had the pronunciation right before I named her that. And there was one source that pronounced it her way, so I'm sure it's like the actual Greek pronunciation or the original. I don't know. But I don't know. If, if one of you listeners knows, I would love to hear about it. Yeah, I refuse to say Calliope no. just because, I mean, I know sweet little Calliope. And yeah, that's, yeah. And that's such a nicer name. It's so <laughs> much nicer. So I reject Calliope. <laughs> yeah, I reject it too. <laughs> Anyways, that's not going to be the only name I pronounce not right. So, Oh, yeah, there's probably be so many that I think I'm also pronouncing right, but I'm not. But that's just the way that it's going to go with these kinds of books. We may as well get it out of the way right at the very beginning. Yeah. So the expectations are nice <laughs> and low. So anyways, throughout the book, we switch between the perspectives of different women, and the timeline jumps around quite a lot. After Calliope, the first woman we hear from is Creusa, who is one of Priam and Hecuba's daughters. She wakes in the night to find Troy burning. She can't find her husband or her son, and all of the servants have fled. Everything outside is mayhem, and she hears men talking in a language she doesn't recognize. She's confused because, as far as she knows, the Trojans won the war days ago when the Greeks packed up and sailed away, leaving behind only a single, very large wooden horse. An offering to the gods. <laughs> she mentions that she was only 12 years old when the Greeks came. All of these people were captive inside their city walls for 10 years. The Greeks had a plan that they would basically raid all of their surrounding towns to cut off their food supply and starve them out. Creusa talks about how she had hardly any food while the Greeks flaunted everything they had. I've only really ever heard the Greek side of the story, so it was interesting to hear from her and hear a little bit about what it was like inside the walls. The Trojan women have now been captured, and they are left out on the beach while they wait for the Greeks to finish looting the city before returning to claim them as their final prizes. King Priam has been killed, and his wife Hecuba is thinking about how, now that Hector is dead, only one of her sons remains, and she is grateful that they thought to send him away to keep him safe. Or there would be nothing and no one left. I found it interesting that the Trojan women were grouped together like they were. I was expecting it to be women who lived in the city, and instead it was from the point of view of mostly Hecuba, who was queen. I just wonder about the decision to group them together like that. Like, I guess that they were all grouped together on the beach until they weren't. I don't know. When they were taken away, they got their individual perspectives more. I don't know, I think there's probably more to it than that, but it was just something that I kind of wondered about. Okay, keep in mind that we're jumping back and forth through time, so this isn't going to be very linear. Theano and her husband, whatever his name was, warned Priam that this would happen. They told them that they must return Helen or everyone would die. Theano also knows what's coming. She knows that the Greeks made a big show of sailing away, but they're actually hiding inside the horse, and she knows that they are already in the city. Ah, I also know that they're inside the horse. Yeah. I can't do much about it. <laughs> no, nothing at all. <laughs> so unfortunate. <laughs> she tells her husband to be the one to open the gates to the city so that the Greeks will favor them to save them. And he does. And they do. The Greeks raid every house but theirs. And when Hecuba is on the beach, she notices that Theano isn't there and she knows why. Okay, we didn't get anything more about the Trojan horse either. Like they mention it a few times and then it's just like, pfft on. But I guess this is one of those things where we are limited in the perspective of the narrators. 
I feel like the Trojan horse is the most well-known aspect of the Trojan War, but it's the part I know actually the least about. I never hear about it. Never. It's actually, it's weird what I do. Yeah. Like it wasn't in Achilles. It wasn't in the Iliad. It was hardly in this book. (laughs) Hecuba says that she knew that they would lose the war when the Amazon fell. There was a woman, worlds away from Troy, named Penthesilea, who accidentally killed her twin sister, and her grief was so huge that she couldn't go on, but she was so powerful that no man could kill her, except one. She had heard that there was one man fighting in the Trojan War whose power could match her own. So she set up for Troy to fight against the Greeks, which honestly seems a little bit ridiculous. Just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) There are other ways, but... I mean, well, you know, she wanted that that great warrior death, <laughs> that glory. Yeah, uh, I well, don't know. It's just I'm so tired all the time that I couldn't imagine traveling that far just so someone could kill me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. no. Um, at this point in the story, Patroclus is dead. Patroclus. And Achilles is also trying to die, but no matter who he attacks, he is unable to beat them. I was slightly less sad this time because they weren't all in love, so. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't as good, but (laughs) still. So when Achilles does kill Penthesilea, she says thank you to him. And it says that he sees that he was his mirror image, as Patroclus had been. And I thought that that was really interesting. And it made me stop and wonder what that meant. I guess, like, I could see that she was his equal. She was like the female version of him in so many ways. But I just don't know how that ties into Patroclus. Nope. (laughs) No, I don't. I don't get it. So it's probably very deep. Yeah, it's it's gotta be. I don't know. (laughs) Natalie Haynes knows something that I don't know. And I really want to know it. She knows so many things that I don't know. (laughs) So many. (laughs) Also, this is just a side note. Uh, The way that dying is described in this book, just a few times, like their eyes clouding and the light darkening in them was very similar to the Iliad. And I know it's not exactly an odd way to describe the look of someone dying, but it was a reoccurring thing in the epic. So it was just something I noticed here right away. So I thought maybe it was a little bit of a a nod to it. Cool. Cassandra, who is also one of Priam and Hecuba's daughters, was visited by Apollo in the night. She refused him and he was pissed, but persisted and she refused again, unless he gave her something in return. Smart lady. Mm-hmm. She wanted to see the future, the gift of prophecy. Apollo gave it without a thought, and then when he reached for her again, she saw the vision of what he would become and what he would do to her, and it was too frightening and horrible, and she refused him again. Oh. <sighs> now he was really pissed that she would refuse a god after taking the gift from him, and just like that, he cursed her. So from then on, she saw everyone's horrible futures, but no one would ever believe her. Everyone just thinks she's gone mad. I mean, I don't know what she expected, but... The gods aren't known for being nice. No. No, they're not. I just felt so bad for her. She gets this the gift that she wanted, that she can see the future, and the first vision she sees is Apollo, like, attacking her. (sighs) That's just not good. Careful what you wish for. Yes, I did watch a Goosebumps episode about that. Oh. When I was a kid. (laughs) Pretty sure it was Goosebumps, but that's what I always think of. (laughs) That actually sounds quite familiar. 
Yeah, I think it was something about bugs. Just your family disappeared or something. I don't know. Doesn't matter. <laughs> but <laughs> anyways, I really love getting a perspective from Cassandra. Her story has popped up quite a lot in my reading this year, and it really speaks to the way that women are treated, the way that our voices are quieted, the way that sometimes we are still dismissed as crazy or hormonal when we speak our truth. Now, Apollo, he is just the worst. He killed Patroclus, and now I can never forgive him anyways. But he is supposed to be like the Greek god of music, poetry, light, prophecy, medicine. Did he kill Achilles? Well, I guess Apollo threw Patroclus off the wall, oh. and then Hector killed him. That's true. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he was, yeah. And then, yeah, Apollo helped he someone else kill arrowed Achilles. Yeah. Achilles. Yeah. So, yeah. But yes, continue. <laughs> I just blame him for everything. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, you should. It's pretty much his fault. <laughs> pretty much. He's the god of all these nice things. I would just think that he would, could just like chill out sometimes. I mean, I guess we can't hold them to the same standards that we live by because they aren't human. But like, come on, man. The gods have zero chill. Zero. We hear from Penelope, Odysseus's wife, in the form of letters to him which I was so excited about. Basically, these parts of the book recap the Odyssey, which neither of us have read yet, but it is sitting on my bedside table, so whew, I'm getting close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she starts off by writing about how she knows that he didn't want to leave her, and we learn that he tried to stay in Ithaca by pretending that he was mad. She suggests that pretending that he was dead would have probably been better. <laughs> She is so cheeky. She is very, very cheeky. <laughs> As somebody who has been just so goddamn pregnant for a hundred thousand years, I could really relate to her brand of sass she was throwing at her husband. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was there for it too. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not a million years pregnant, so... <laughs> It's <laughs> okay. But yeah, apparently Odysseus plowed his fields with salt in the hopes that he would be thought mad and wouldn't be drafted for the war, which I thought was pretty funny. It's not a great game plan, but... <laughs> I think it was Agamemnon who took their infant son and laid him in front of the plow. And if Odysseus was truly mad, he would have just plowed right over the baby. But obviously he wasn't mad so he stopped i mean yeah i guess but yeah agamemnon is the worst so he really I, really is so it's yes. not actually that surprising no but it's just i mean we've read some other books about madness recently and i the scale on which madness is weighed always shocks me <laughs> right i mean it could also just be it's a very large spectrum of what could be considered <laughs> mad. This is true. Yeah. But Penelope says that she would have turned the plow onto her own feet. Only a mad person would do that. Apparently. <laughs> and even so, you can't go to war with your feet cut into ribbons. So, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> she also amuses that sometimes she thinks of all the children they could have had if that son had just been sacrificed. One son's life for the possible life of many more. Which, uh, I mean, I don't know. She says she, she knows she's horrible for thinking that and she didn't, wouldn't actually want it, but. Uh, and they're so hard to make. Good lord. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Chryseis is the daughter of one of Apollo's priests, and she is taken by Agamemnon as a war prize. When her father requests that she be returned, Agamemnon says no and is super rude to him. Ugh. 
I just, I just hate him so much. It's just nothing good. <laughs> so Apollo sends a plague to the Greek camp, killing a lot of them. And to stop it, Agamemnon must return the girl to her father. So here we get to see her side of the story, and it's interesting because we learn that her father sent her away as an unnamed baby after his wife died in childbirth. Through his grief, he couldn't bear to have her around. Then one day he decides to have her back again, uh, but he's not overly nice to her. Yeah, so she's super surprised when he shows up to get her back because he doesn't like her. <laughs> yeah, but the whole time she's like, is he just coming to get me back so he can be even worse to me later? Like, yeah. Right. Would it be... <laughs> worse for him to get me yeah she wants nothing more than to be released but she's also afraid of what the consequences are going to be for allowing herself to be captured in the first place yes especially since she was going to do it with a sheep herd yeah or whatever his job was it doesn't matter probably that he's super dead yeah (laughs) when she's captured by the greeks she is kept with a bunch of other captured women and she ends up befriending one of them and it ends up being Breeze's. Yay! Yay. <laughs> I was so happy to see her alive and well again for now. Mm, yeah. Me too. Although we don't get to spend very much time with her. Her chapter is definitely one of the longer ones, but it's mixed in with Chryseis. Speaking of, it's time for the Greeks to choose their women, and Agamemnon chooses Chryseis, though he doesn't really seem to care. And Achilles chooses Breeze's, though we know that he also doesn't really care, obviously. He's in love with Patroclus? Yeah. (laughs) It's expected of them to take women as prizes, and so they do. Yes. uh, It turns out that the women are usually lined up from most to least beautiful, which is gross. (laughs) And Agamemnon, (laughs) being the commander or whatever, gets to choose first. So yeah, he chooses the first in line without even looking. But Achilles knew that Patroclus wanted Briseis, but she was the most beautiful. So she should have gone to Agamemnon. So Achilles paid whoever was making the line to set it up so that Briseis was second. Sneaky, sneaky. Sneaky, sneaky. I was just kind of bad because I was like, excuse me, Achilles, what are you getting your boyfriend women for? But it's fine. Like I said, it's not the song of Achilles. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> Uh, But yeah, during these parts, it was the song of Achilles to me. So Um, we know the story of Achilles taking Briseis when Patroclus asked him to. But I think that we at least also forget sometimes that Achilles killed her entire family in front of her. So we kind of see her as being saved, but like it's actually complete torture for her. Yeah, yeah. Song of Achilles really kind of glossed over that. Yeah, it's mentioned a little bit. But then she's like trying to marry Patroclus. So. Yeah, so then it's fine. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah. We forget about that, but it happened. Also, before they get taken away to their new tents, Briseis flips Chryseis some herbs to put into Agamemnon's wine that will give him some erectile dysfunction <laughs> to save her from being raped. So that's nice of her. Yeah, that is nice. And it works. Thank goodness. Uh, And then we have Thetis. Also, love Thetis, and I loved getting another perspective from her. In Achilles, she was very much focused on her love for Achilles and her hatred of Patroclus. In this story, she speaks a lot of how much she hates Peleus, her husband, and that she hates his mortal blood that runs through her son, Achilles. I especially love the way that her story was woven through the others, and also other stories that I never noticed her possible involvement in. 
I thought that it was so interesting when she says that she holds a huge grudge against Odysseus because she had tried to hide Achilles away on Skyros, but Odysseus found him and exposed him. And now she believes that it's his fault that Achilles will die in Troy. So she vows that the sea will not be a safe place for Odysseus as long as she dwells there. <laughs> huh. I love it. Because we know that Odysseus has a real hard time getting home to Ithaca after the war is over. Mm-hmm. So any involvement that Thetis has there is amazing. Yes, I actually love her so much. After my second reading of Achilles, I was like, wait a second, I kind of love Thetis. <laughs> yeah, me too. Iphigenia is Agamemnon's daughter, and one day he says that she's to be married to Achilles... So she and her mother travel to them for the wedding. Don't do it, Iphigenia. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's a trap. <laughs> Never mind that he's already married to Datamea. Thank you for not making me say that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. We didn't even hear from her at all, did we? Like, hers is a perspective I would have really liked, especially with Thetis taking their son to raise, I guess. Oh, yeah. yeah, like, that seems like a big deal, but I guess we couldn't hear from every woman. Like, we couldn't even cover all the ones from this book in this podcast because it would be too long. Sorry, ladies. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there are a few parts of this book that I think could have been cut in favor of a Datamea chapter. Anyways, it's fine. Iphigenia was so young and sweet and naive. She was very excited to be a bride, but she noticed something was wrong as soon as she stepped out on the beach for the wedding. First, there was no wind. And then she saw the tears in her father's eyes. Ugh. If her father wasn't Agamemnon, I might care yeah. a little more, but right. the blade in his hand, which also cancels out your tears. Yeah. <laughs> and she knew that she would not be married that day or any other day. She didn't know what Achilles looked like, so she'd never even gotten to see him before she, a virgin, was sacrificed to Artemis. <sighs> we knew that this was coming here, but it was still very sad. The scene was also very shocking and upsetting in Achilles. But here we got to know her a little bit beforehand. And okay, this is totally an aside and probably inappropriate since we were talking about her being killed. But I just wanted to mention that I love the part where she looks at her reflection in the water and thinks about how she doesn't look her best from that angle. <laughs> and that it gives her a double chin. Ah, uh, yes, me too. Because <laughs> I know you all can understand <laughs> opening up your phone to selfie mode and being like not too happy about the reflection looking back. <laughs> Oh, it's horrible. Is there anything worse than when you don't know somebody's FaceTiming you? Oh my god. <laughs> it's just chins. You're like, oh lord, did I push? Yeah. Yes. Oh god. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was just something I was giggling about while reading. <laughs> I also thought of this. I was like, oh good, yes, that is, that's relatable. Yes. <laughs> One thing that's interesting to mention here is that in the Briseis chapter, she also mentions to Chryseis that to stop Agamemnon's approaches to mention his daughter because he held such guilt for what he did. I was actually surprised that he felt anything about it at all, because based on the rest of his character, he's awful. Right? I was also surprised by this, because a few times it felt a little like she was trying to garner a little bit of sympathy for him. Like, I had none. Never. No, not even a little bit. So now, Helen has been captured and added to the group of Trojan women, which is pretty much just Hecuba and her daughters at this point, because the rest have been given out already. Helen talks about how everyone blames her for all of this, but it wasn't just her, it was also Paris. <laughs> yes, she was a married woman, but Paris was a married man. Yeah. Okay, I thought 
But it was one of the great unknowns, whether or not Helen was abducted from Sparta or if she went with Paris willingly. But in this story, it's told that Helen was interested in Paris, but the goddess Aphrodite wanted her to go with him. And Helen tried to resist, but Aphrodite sent her like unrelenting screaming sound that only stopped when she stepped onto a ship. So she had no choice but to go with him or like go crazy. Yeah, I thought this was an often debated subject, but in this book, it's pretty clear what happened. And I did a little bit of looking around, and this story is correct. It's not like Natalie Haynes made it up. I have been reading the Iliad, and I was very surprised about how much the gods were involved in all this. These people in these myths were like puppets for them. In the Iliad, it's not clear why and how Helen ended up in Troy. So yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it comes up again later in this book. And it's just, yeah, it's very clear what happened. I kind of liked her attitude about it because, what is it, Hecuba keeps asking her questions and Helen keeps answering. And then Hecuba's like, oh, what? Just I'm just answering your questions. Like, yeah. go away if you don't want to hear my answer. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought Helen was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Considering I've never once liked her before right then. Yeah, well, she's not usually portrayed very good. <laughs> like... You know, she really messed a lot of stuff up for a lot of people. So. Yes. Um, okay, I guess the other thing to remember is that this is all mythology. So technically, probably none of it is true. Not for me. (laughs) (laughs) I guess they don't even know for sure if the city Troy ever existed or if the war even happened. So, I mean, who knows? But we're talking about it like it's for real. It's okay. So now we get a view of Thetis and Peleus's wedding. Remember, Thetis was forced by Zeus to marry the mortal man because of the prophecy that her son would be more powerful than his father. And Zeus can't have anyone be more powerful than him, so he makes sure that her son is half-mortal. Especially because Zeus himself overthrew his father, and his father overthrew his father, etc, etc. On and on and on. So Thetis is completely humiliated that all of the gods have shown up to her wedding, and she plots a bit of revenge... Hmm. Interesting. So this is an aside, but they're at the wedding and these goddesses are looking at her and I think it's Aphrodite or no, Hera. Yeah, Hera looks at Thetis's earrings and is like, oh, it'd be really tacky for me to ask to have those, hey? (laughs) (laughs) But now I can't stop thinking about these stupid earrings and I just want them so badly. So I Googled them. And something like them is in the British Museum. Um, but that is unattainable for me. So I just thought I'd tell you about my sadness. Yeah, so if you have any uh if anyone has a hookup. <laughs> yeah, if anyone makes earrings and they just want to send us some bling. Yeah, I mean feel free. They sound great. What is it? A snake eating his own tail with like dogs and monkeys inside and like <laughs> birds dangling. Oh, I love them. Yeah, they so look much. great on you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyways, back to the uh, the story. Hera, Zeus's wife, and two of their daughters, Athena and Aphrodite, find a tiny golden apple inscribed with the words, For the Most Beautiful. All three of them are arguing over who it was addressed to when suddenly they find themselves on Mount Ida with a young man. He says that his name is Paris and he is a bit confused because only moments ago he was working in the field. And then, bam. He's standing before these goddesses. They tell him that he must choose who the apple belongs to. I was pretty confused here because why was Paris working in a field? (laughs) 
I was like, is this the same Paris? I was so confused. Like, he's supposed to be this vain, pretty boy prince. Later, we learned that there was a prophecy that Paris would bring their city's downfall. And so when he was born, Priam and Hecuba, unable to kill him themselves, gave him to a herdsman to kill. But he could also not go through with killing a baby. So not crazy enough. Yeah, no. <laughs> Instead, he just kept him and brought him up as a goat herder. Like, that's what? I didn't. <laughs> it's very strange. Yeah, I did not know that at all. <laughs> I find that so hard to imagine. But, anyways, the goddesses start offering him things in return for the apple kingdoms, riches, etc. But then Aphrodite offers him the most beautiful woman in the world, Helen of Sparta, and he gives the apple to her. Aphrodite. I was just remembering when she's like, I'll give you the most beautiful woman in the world. And then Paris is like, you? Thanks. And she's like, oh, no, you could not handle me. You could not handle me. You would literally explode. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) Athena and Hera were not happy about Aphrodite getting that apple. No. And I mean, (sighs) so annoying. It's an apple. Yeah. Who just who cares? It's not Thetis's earrings. Come on. Right? Like, the whole Trojan War is started because of this goddamn golden apple that's, like, the size of a grape or something. <sighs> yeah, those gods and goddesses, they don't care. No. <laughs> Penelope writes to Odysseus again, wondering why it's taking him so long to return home. It's been a year since the war ended. She has heard stories. What about a cyclops? It's a whole thing, but basically, Odysseus blinds and pisses off a cyclops, who turns out to be the son of Poseidon, and Odysseus couldn't help telling the Cyclops his name, gloating about the fact that he had been able to escape him. Then Poseidon, who now knows that it was Odysseus who did it, because Odysseus told him, curses him and says he won't return home for 10 years, and when he does, it will be without his crew. What a big, (sighs) dumb dummy. (laughs) I know I've said it before. But don't tell people things you don't want them to know. Yes. (laughs) It's just so easy. So easy. (laughs) And, well, Penelope loves Odysseus and wouldn't change anything about him. But she does wish that she had been there to cover his mouth before he could tell the Cyclops his damn name. (sighs) Inoni, a forest nymph, fell in love with Paris and married him while he was a goat herder. And before he was forced to choose between the goddesses we just mentioned. When Paris went to confront his parents and take his rightful place as the Prince of Troy, Inoni knew that he wouldn't be back. She had the gift of prophecy. I feel like everyone in these stories has this gift. Yeah, it comes up quite a lot. (laughs) You'd think they would do better, but... Right. (laughs) Anyways, she could see that Paris was going to sail to Greece, but she couldn't see why, and it wasn't until she found out that he was back with a new wife that she knew and she watched the war from afar until one day Paris appeared before her, injured and dying, asking her to heal him. She does not. <laughs> Fair enough. Like, God. I wonder if Paris was also the worst when he was just a goat herder. Like, the goats are out there, like, bah, nah. nah. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> So Penelope writes to Odysseus again. Another year has passed and he still hasn't returned home. Where are you? She says. (laughs) The only information she gets is from songs she hears. 
the most recent one being that he had gained the favor of Aeolus, the god of wind, who gave him a bag of wind to help him sail home. But just as Ithaca was in sight, his men, thinking that he was hiding treasure from them in the bag, opened it up, even though they had just been specifically instructed not to. And <laughs> the winds turned against them, blowing them away from home once more. Seriously. They were so close. <laughs> so close. So stupid. How hard is it for men to just follow the damn instructions? Right? I'm sure they're probably <laughs> written on the back. <laughs> uh. <sighs> Penelope has also heard that he landed on the island of Aiea which we know to be Cersei's island. Woohoo! This is a long story, but basically Cersei turns all of his men into pigs, and then Hermes warns Odysseus and tells him what to do to avoid the same thing happening to him. One of the things being to sleep with Cersei when she tried to seduce him. Penelope says that she knows that it didn't happen, because if it did, then that meant he had been basically living with Cersei as her husband for the last year, and he couldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. Because he was her husband. Wouldn't he, though? Wouldn't he? I mean, he uh, basically is gone on the seas for 10 years and spends at least like 8.5 of them with other women. <laughs> so, oh, Penelope. Uh, it's just too bad. And, you know, I thought Odysseus was all right, but he's kind of a jerk, too. He's kind of a jerk. Yeah. So I usually don't like letters and books, but I really liked Penelope's voice. And I actually liked the way that the letters broke up the pacing of the book a little bit. Also, wow, this part made me want to reread Circe so bad. So bad. It's so good. Yeah. I read it so long ago. And now I think that I would have a newfound appreciation for it. And I would understand it more and just get more from it. Now that I actually know anything about Greek mythology, because when I read that book, I literally knew actually nothing. So I, I probably feel like I didn't get it, <laughs> maybe. Okay. But I really liked it. So um, this also really makes me want to read the Odyssey. But I'm still working on the Iliad, though, so I don't even know when I'll get to it. But it sounds like quite the adventure. It sounds like I would like the Odyssey more than the Iliad, though, I'm thinking. I have read neither yet, but I also feel like I will like the Odyssey better than the Iliad. Yeah, because this like recap we're getting is really good. So now we learn a little bit about where that little golden apple came from. Eris, who is the goddess of strife and discord, came home to Olympus to find literally everyone gone. She realizes that they have all gone to Thetis and Peleus' wedding, and everyone has been invited but her. <laughs> and she's pissed. Yeah, well... Pretty rude, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rude. <laughs> she is the one who finds the little golden apple just rolling around in the temple, and just decides to take it. So, okay, we'll get back to that soon. The Greeks bring the Trojan women, the body of a young boy washed ashore, and it is Polydorus, Hecuba's youngest son, who she had sent away for safekeeping with a friend. Keep this in mind. Odysseus then reveals that he has chosen Hecuba as his prize, and she is confused as to why he would choose an old woman over her daughters. His marriage with Penelope was a love match, and they really do love each other, so he doesn't really have an interest in taking bed slaves. So that's good. That's, I mean, he's not all bad. Not all bad. Not as bad as Agamemnon. It's okay. I mean, I really do like Odysseus. He is, he is a great character. He's so funny and witty and smart. 
And I really enjoy his parts in all the books about the Trojan War. And Penelope is like a great counter to him. Ooh. I want Madeline Miller to write a book called The Song of Penelope, <laughs> where we get to see them meet and fall in love. That would be a great story. <sighs> Maybe. <Yeah. laughs> Still wouldn't be The Song of Achilles. But. You know what I really want her to do is like a full-on uh, Hercules. Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about. (laughs) Menelaus, who has been playing it cool, finally sends for Helen, who up until now has just been mixed in with the other Trojan women. Odysseus is kind of a jerk to her, and she tells him that he would die for her in a heartbeat, and he can't hide it any better than any other man, and not to mock her, or he will regret it. Although literally everyone hates her, and she doesn't seem to have very many redeeming qualities, like, she's kind of (laughs) cool. But... Does that mean that I am also under her spell? Mm. Can I hide it better than any other man? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Okay, I know that she's supposed to be blonde, but you know who I picture as her? Marjorie Tyrell from Game of Thrones. Isn't Helen got dark hair? No, she's blonde. But I feel like they said a bunch of times that she had dark hair, and I kept being like, no, she doesn't. I mean, I could be wrong, but swear they mentioned a whole bunch of times that she had like white hair they kept saying that she was super fair yeah right but i always pictured her as a brunette yeah but i just i I like brunettes well i'm in love with marjorie tyrell so that also works for me yeah so we can be under her spell that's fine hecuba up until this chapter has always been mixed in with her daughters and with helen but now she gets her own chapter when odysseus states his plans to take hecuba to thrace Cassandra knows what will happen to her, and she wants to tell her, but she can't. Well, she can, but no one will listen to her or believe her. Also, little does she know that her mom was all like, I wouldn't take that crazy girl with me. Oh, I know. Probably don't feel bad about it, Cassandra. No, don't feel bad. Not at all. (laughs) Okay, so Odysseus takes Hecuba to Thrace, where she is met by Polymester, who is very, very shady. He talks to Odysseus about how he knows Agamemnon and has been in contact with him and has just been waiting for the word that their assistance was needed in the war. Yeah, okay. Then Odysseus tells him that his friend, Queen Hecuba, is there to see him. And Polymester gets nervous because how could he be friends with the Trojan royal family while also preparing to help the Greeks in the war? Odysseus tells him that he understands that Hecuba and Priam sent their youngest son, Polydorus, to be kept under his care. Well, this just got awkward. Yeah. Polymester is sweating now because obviously he killed him. He starts talking about his own sons to try and distract Odysseus, and Odysseus says that he would love to see his sons because he has one of his own that he misses dearly. And then he tells him to bring Polydorus out too. It's going to end so bad. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Hecuba comes out then, and Polymester is all like, My dear friend, I'm so sorry for your losses. I will pray to the gods for you, blah, 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 blah. Hecuba goes along with it for a minute, but then can't take it anymore, and she says that she knows what he's done. Polymester tries to say that she is wrong. Someone has lied to her. But then she just kills his sons. So, yeah. Then Hecuba and her friends stab Polymester repeatedly in the eyes. Mm -hmm. As you do. Yep, yep. 
Uh, she says, you've wiped out my line, and now I've wiped out yours. She tells him that she has let him live, so he will go the rest of his life knowing that the last thing he ever saw was the death of his sons. That is <sighs> proper rage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, polymester deserved it. Sons didn't, but... No, no, that's true. Yeah. But I think when we go into these war stories, suddenly I'm just like, it's everyone's fault all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Penelope writes to Odysseus about his little trip to the underworld. <laughs> At first, she thought that he was dead because she didn't think that you could just go there if you weren't. But turns out that Cersei sent him there to receive a prophecy. There he sees the spirit of one of his men. Apparently he died on Aiea. But no one even noticed that he was gone. He was the one, remember in Cersei, the one that got drunk and fell off the roof? <laughs> Do you remember that part? Um, mostly I just remember everybody being pigs. Yeah, that happens too. Um, I'm just wondering if they noticed, I'm just, it doesn't really matter, but I was just trying to remember if they noticed in Cersei that he was dead too. Is there just a dead body that fell off a roof? And yeah. And he's like acknowledging Yeah, it? and then they just sailed away and left him. Uh, well. It's it's just small. I want to know. I'll, I'm just going to reread it and find out. No, it's been a long time. I cannot remember. But yeah, he begs Odysseus to return to the island to bury him properly, and Odysseus agrees. Then the next spirit he sees is his mother, and he had not even known that she had died of a broken heart, waiting for her son to return. <sighs> Ugh, it's awkward. It's <laughs> super awkward. Then the prophecy guy appears and says the obvious. He has angered Poseidon, and his journey home will be difficult. <laughs> Thanks for sending me all the way to the underworld to find that out. <laughs> like, what? So Penelope says that in the Bard song, Odysseus asked his mother how everyone and everything was doing back home, including the dog. And only at the end of the list, like, how's the dog? How's the, the son, the father, the mother, the house the kingdom the blah 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 on and on the last thing he asks is how penelope was so she ends his letter by saying that the dog is doing just fine yeah. it made me laugh oh, penelope so they mentioned it earlier i think in one of thetis's chapters that odysseus also sees achilles in the underworld and achilles tells him that he would rather be an alive peasant than a dead hero so we also learn that achilles regrets his decision to go to war and die in glory <sighs> i mean obviously it should just be known that dying in glory isn't that great <laughs> yeah yeah. Menelaus goes to talk to Hecuba and sees that Helen faces a death sentence when she returns to Sparta because adultery is a crime punishable by death. And yeah, that's the reason. Yeah. yeah. But Hecuba knows that he won't put her to death and so does he. He's also come to take one of Hecuba's daughters and chooses Polyxena. When Polyxena asks where she's being taken, Menelaus lets it slip. She's being taken to Deoptolemus. Who is that, do you say? At first, I also did not recognize the name, <laughs> but it is none other than Achilles' son. He's also called Pyrrhus, and that is the name that we are most familiar with. Okay, he was what, like 13 or something when he showed up in Troy? Oh, I hate him so much. So bad. That's the age I remember reading in Achilles, I thought, but I don't know, that math doesn't really add up to me, but I don't know. Oh, well. No, it does not. No, because he's... 10 years but were they sailing for three years maybe and nine months i just don't think so but oh. whatever who knows doesn't matter anyways he is a kid still 
but he is a horrible, horrible kid. He is the one that killed Priam in the end, and he is apparently taking Polyxena as a gift for his father. But his father is dead. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> it was thought that because Agamemnon had to sacrifice his daughter for them to make it to Troy, they thought that they had to sacrifice one of Priam's daughters to make it home again. She's actually relieved, though, because she would rather die than become a slave. Mm-hmm. So the whole Paris thing with the goddesses and Helen becomes known as the Judgment of Paris, and it provides a great setting for the gods to settle old grudges on the battlefield at Troy. So basically, it was a game to them, and these poor people were their pawns. This definitely makes me see the entire thing differently. The question is always, like like we said, did Helen go on her own, or was she taken? But how is this even a question if the story is that Aphrodite influenced her, and Aphrodite also influenced Paris to go there in the first place? Like, Yeah. So Eris was the one who found the little golden apple, and because she is the goddess of strife and discord... It makes sense that she would leave it at the wedding for the goddesses to fight over. But did we ever find out where it came from? I don't think so, unless I totally missed it. But I was looking out for it, so that doesn't seem right. I mean, it had to have said somewhere. Um, I wonder if it was Thetis, because she mentioned that she was going to get her revenge on the gods for making her marry Peleus, and then also going to the wedding and watching her humiliation as if it was nothing. But then we didn't hear from her again, unless I missed it, but I don't think so. (laughs) And I can't remember if it was in this book or the Iliad, but I know that Thetis is good friends with Hephaestus? Hephaestus? you know, the blacksmith god. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever his name was. So I don't know. I'm not sure. If anyone else caught this answer, please let us know because I'm so, so curious. Are you ready for some juicy gossip? Yes. (laughs) Turns out that Gaia, who is the Greek version of Mother Earth, has decided that a little bit of population control is needed. There are too many people on the earth and some need to go because they are just too heavy for her to carry. So Zeus visits Themis, who is the personification of divine order. He wants to know what she thinks should be done. She suggests a number of things that Zeus nays. Plague, volcano, earthquake. Nah, none of those are good enough. Why did he even ask her advice? (laughs) I hate it when people do that. (laughs) Well, anyways, she suggests war and that's it that's that was the answer he was looking for a big old war will take care of the deaths of quite a lot of people and this is actually where the whole plan stems from they choose troy to be where the war happens they choose the greeks to invade and they decide that they will invade because paris will take helen they knew that they would need the help of aphrodite and to trick her into helping them themis had just the thing oh wait so themis planted the apple oh my god i'm so confused (laughs) Did I even read this book? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, you know, when you're just plotting the death of a ton of humanity and you're like, wait, I'm pretty sure I've got a tiny golden apple around here. (laughs) Yes, that'll do the trick. (laughs) I guess that this is one thing that can go on the con list for a book that jumps around to different perspectives. It starts to get a little bit hard to keep track of where we are and what's happening. I mean, I really love the way that the story was woven together, but I think I definitely missed some stuff. Speaking of switching perspectives, on to Penelope. She has had enough. It's been another year and her patience has run out. She knows that Odysseus went back to Aea, and then when he left, he sailed right for the sirens because obviously he can't ignore or resist an adventure. (laughs) No one has ever heard the songs of the sirens and lived to tell about it, so of course he would try to. (sighs) Men. (laughs) So stupid. (laughs) 
He ordered his men to put beeswax in their ears to protect themselves, but he didn't use the earplugs. Instead, he got his crew to tie him to the ship and to not let him free no matter what he said or did. She's wondering why it seems that Cersei, who gave him the directions of where to go, is setting him down the most dangerous route there could possibly be. Because next, he must get past a man-eating monster named Scylla and a ship-eating whirlpool. <sighs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not going to say I've never given bad directions to somebody I was mad at. <laughs> uh, these are pretty bad directions. <laughs> Yeah, just turn left at the serial killer's house, drive right into their garage, close the door. <laughs> You're going to see handcuffs, put them on. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit far-fetched, but it's fine. <laughs> then they stop at an island, and Cersei's one instruction was to not kill any of the creatures who live there because they belong to Hyperion. That's easy. What's one night without meat? Meatless Monday. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well... Then the wind turned against their favor, of course, trapping them there for an entire month. Eventually, the men grew restless and hungry, and while Odysseus slept, they killed one of Hyperion's cattle. Once the winds changed and they set sail once again, the gods got their revenge. His only ship that was left was pushed back to Scylla's caves, and every last man but Odysseus was drowned. And then Odysseus just washes up on a shore on a faraway island. That's lucky. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Now the Greeks have come to take Hector's son away from his mother, Andromache, even though he is just a little baby, because they don't want him to grow up to be a big, great warrior, and he will avenge his father. <sighs> Andromache begs for the life of her baby and offers all different kinds of solutions. She'll change her name. She'll tell her son that Hector was a coward. She'll never mention him at all. But nothing works. Yeah. She then asks that she die with him. They say that she does not own her life to give it up. So they take the baby and say that he belongs to Neoptolemus now, and that he will be thrown from the city walls to die where he was born. Uh. <sighs> Andromache begs to allow them to just let her smother him herself so that he can die in his mother's arms. They say no. Ugh. Like, just... Awful. 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 So bad. Awful. Like, I'm starting to be right there with you when it comes to not wanting to read any more books where babies die. It's every single book. Every single book. It's too much. It's so much. It seems incredible. Impossible, <laughs> even. And yeah. yet. Yeah. Every single book. Ugh. So, yeah, I'm on, I'm on your side with <laughs> this now. <laughs> Honestly, I need to start keeping a tally in my like yearly reading log and see what percentage of books have a baby or a kid die in them because yeah. it's getting ridiculous. Yep. I agree. It's okay. <laughs> Let's get away from that. As far away as possible. <laughs> as far away as possible. <sighs> it also turns out that Cassandra's twin brother, Hellenus, betrayed the city to the Greeks. He met with Odysseus and told him what they needed to do to take the city. He was pissed because once Paris was dead, he wanted to marry Helen, but one of his brothers was promised her instead. Helen. Ugh. I mean, okay, it's for the best, really. Helen and Hellenus. No, <laughs> come on. That's no. no good. No, no good at all. <laughs> so Hecuba thinks that all of her sons are dead, and Cassandra knows that she will die thinking that. So I guess Hellenus is alive somewhere. But no one will believe Cassandra when she tries to tell them. Nope. Okay, so Penelope is right pissed now. 
10 years in a ridiculous war, followed by three years wandering around the high seas because of also ridiculous excuses. I met a monster. I met a witch. Cannibals broke my ships. A whirlpool ate your friends. (laughs) And now seven more years have passed with no word from him. The bard says that he is held captive on an island, and Penelope is sure that it must be some horrible old crone. That's the only valid explanation. But no, it's a nymph called Calypso, keeping him there. She says that Ithaca no longer sees him as a king. Men have filled her house, hoping to take her as their wife. And because of his absence and his infidelity, she might take a new husband. Honestly, at this point, I probably would have... What's it called when you get a divorce, but it's because they ditched you? I don't know. Oh, it's got a word. You can file for, like, abandonment. Oh, yeah. Then. Yeah, she should do that. What's this, like, 70, 20 years? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 20 years. But the problem is that the men that are trying to get her are so young and stupid that she would rather have Odysseus back. She likes him old and stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Plus, she has also heard that Calypso offered him immortality in return for staying with her, and he refused. So she still has hope that he will return to her. Oh, Penelope. You gotta give him up. Yeah. Come on. There's gotta be some young goat herd around there. Yep. Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's wife. Ooh, those were words. (laughs) Never forgave him for killing their eldest daughter, Iphigenia. For the 10 years that her husband was away, the only thing she thought about was how she would get her revenge once he returned home. When he does, she stabs him, and she also kills Cassandra, who he brought home with him. Poor Cassandra. I know, she didn't do anything. She didn't do anything, but she saw it coming, at least. Yeah, she did. And I forget why, but for some reason, Apollo had left her, and so her curse was gone. And in like the last moments of her life, Clytemestra believed everything that Cassandra was saying. She was just like, Cassandra's just mumbling and mumbling. And then Clytemestra's like, oh, really? Like, what happened? And then what happened? And then she's like, you believe me? She's like, of course I believe you. And then then she's dead. Well, Clytemestra says, you could run away. You don't have to be here. And she's like, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I've seen. And then, yeah, stabbed. But I honestly, I don't even blame Clytemestra because, okay, when I read the Song of Achilles, both times, Iphigenia's death gutted me. Mm-hmm. Both times. And then this one, when it comes up again, I'd actually turn to Andrew. And I was like, I would murder you. So hard. Yeah. Just, so I mean, hard. I cannot see us ever being in a situation. <laughs> but just so he knows. Ooh. Oh, yeah. That is how you get me to kill you. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, she, I think I completely missed something here because I was expecting a super elaborate killing plan (laughs) and i expected one where the end result was that it wasn't like clear to the people who did it maybe or maybe it was even an accident because she invited his cousin who was his mortal enemy and then developed a relationship with him and then when (laughs) agamemnon returned there was like a red carpet he walked on and i thought that was going to mean something and then there was like really precise instructions to the slaves on how to draw his bath and then she tricks him into like a straitjacket basically and then just stabs him dead and everyone knows it was her like what did i miss i read it twice and i was like okay i think i'm getting it i think i'm i don't get it i mean it's fine she just killed him which is good but i just was expecting more because there was such a big plan around it right but really like all i could see that the cousin did was lock their daughter in a closet 
so that she couldn't warn him. But that doesn't seem like a good enough reason to call him. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. Anyways, doesn't really matter. Agamemnon's dead. Fine. And we're we're okay with that. So good job, Clytemestra. Odysseus finally returns to Ithaca, but he stays in disguise and doesn't tell anyone he has returned until he sees his son Telemachus hanging out with another guy as if he was his father, and he can't stand it anymore, and he reveals himself to him. Then, in disguise, he goes to the palace, and Penelope doesn't recognize him, but at that moment she gives the suitors a task involving a bow and arrow that only Odysseus can pull off, and he does. And then kills all the suitors, which isn't going to be great because now these 100 men have families who are going to want to avenge their sons. Yeah, considering that Odysseus is so smart, that was a pretty stupid thing to do, really. He does a lot of stupid things. He does. Like, he's supposed to be the smartest, like, wiliest guy. And he's he kind of lost all that in Troy. Like, he left Troy and now he's an idiot. He makes a lot of bad choices. Yeah. I mean, he probably... Could have just been like, aha, the king has returned, and they would have just had to leave. He does jump pretty quickly to murder. Yeah, of a lot of people. So that was weird. But I guess one thing to remember, maybe, because I did remember hearing a little bit about like the Odyssey and how he was just at war for 10 years, and then he was like on this huge adventure, like slicing off the heads of things. and Oh, and sirens probably got to him a little sirens and the fighting the cyclops and all these crazy things that he did oh he went to the underworld too that's gotta mess with their psyche yeah and then he just like comes home and he's like and now i'm home (laughs) now what (laughs) so yeah he's probably a little bit messed up by the end of it a little bit i guess yeah but still idiot (laughs) andromache was taken as a slave by neoptolemus pyrus pyrus (laughs) yeah And soon, she finds herself pregnant with his child. He killed her baby, and his father killed her husband. It's not great. But somehow, she's able to make the best of it. (laughs) And of course, never loves him. (laughs) But she's able to find some good in him to hold on to. Which is weird, considering there is no good in him. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) At first, she was quite depressed and wasn't taking care of herself, which is fair. And Neoptolemus screamed at her, demanding that she eat and stop damaging his property. (sighs) The property being her own body. Gross. It's pretty gross. Yeah. I'm glad that she was able to find the will to live and go on after her first son's murder. And I was glad that she was able to love their son, Molossus, just as much. But I don't know. I would have been plotting his death the entire time. Luckily, he does die, and then <laughs> and, and then Andromache appeals to Peleus, Achilles' father, and he takes them in. The end. The end. <laughs> oh. That was the book. <laughs> that was the whole book. Okay, we have a few discussion questions for you. Thank you to everyone who participated on Facebook and Instagram. We just love getting to hear from you all. And of course, we love talking books. Yeah, so keep talking to us over there. Yes. Each chapter of the book gives a voice to a different woman affected by the Trojan War. How did you feel about this format and who was your favorite narrator? 
I, I think I really enjoy this format of storytelling in general. I always like switching between different narrators because it keeps the story moving. And in this book, especially, I really enjoyed getting so many different perspectives. I thought that it worked out really well. Uh, I think that I enjoyed Penelope's chapters the best. Like, she was just so cheeky and funny. And I really enjoyed hearing about Odysseus's story through her letters and through her eyes. It made me want to immediately pick up the Odyssey. I think that it might also be partly due to the fact that I'm completely tired of the heaviness of books that I've read lately. And Penelope's story was like the least heavy in this book. Yes, I agree. I love the switching narrator's style in pretty much anything. That's just something that I'm drawn to. So, of course, I like that here. And I did like Penelope. But I don't know. I feel like the goddesses and just how ridiculous they were. Yeah, they were pretty, pretty ridiculous. They were so ridiculous that I feel like that was just this weird bit of lightness that just tickled me. Yeah, I could see that. (laughs) What did you think about the gods' involvement in starting the war? Why do you think that most of the focus always seems to be on Helen starting the war? Um, I think probably because Helen started the war is um, why the focus is always there. <laughs> I uh, I guess it's also Paris's fault. Before reading this book, though, I never had actually heard any of this other side to it with the goddesses and the whole deal. So I was really surprised by a lot of that, but it totally makes sense. In the Iliad, the gods play a huge role in the war, but we only got to see what occurred during that small period of time. In the Iliad, I actually didn't love the parts with the gods, but I really enjoyed them in this book. It was interesting to see them using the mortals pretty much as puppets in their little games. It was also awful and unfortunate for the mortals, but learning their involvement was like one of my favorite parts of this book because it was like the perspective that I had never heard before, because I just did think it was Helen going off with Paris, but it wasn't that simple. You know, I have been irrationally angry at Orlando Bloom (laughs) for a little while, just because he plays Paris in the movie Troy. Yeah. And that's probably not fair to Mr. Bloom, but... No, he didn't didn't do anything. Well, he did play Paris in an awful movie. (laughs) Yeah. This is true. <laughs> I never finished the movie, by the way, in case it gets good. Um, <laughs> I, I've i never watched it, but I doubt it. <laughs> you should give it a try. I don't know. No, you, should, just... you sent me that picture of Thetis. <laughs> and that was enough to be, be like, no. No. That's no. not what Thetis looks that like. That is not my Thetis. Did you enjoy Calliope's interludes? Did you think that they added or took away from the story? Honestly, I could have done without them. I'm sure that they had some significance, but whatever it was, I was the least invested in her chapters. And luckily, they were short for me. They did kind of feel like they flew in out of nowhere and flew out just as quickly. I was like, what? Yeah. Like, I was like, uh, uh, should I? Don't care. On to the next thing. They weren't bad. They weren't. I didn't. I don't know. No, they were. They were fine. Yeah. They didn't take away or add to. They They were just there. I was excited for them, though. I thought that they were going to be a little bit more... I don't know what they could have been, but I was only excited for them because I like the name. So Maybe it was because uh, because she was saying it, Calliope. Yeah, it just turned it off. Yeah. It just stopped. Uh, wrong. 
Wrong. Next chapter. <laughs> uh, Hecuba and the other Trojan women wonder if Achilles was destined to be a killer. What do you think? <sighs> you know, I like to live in the world where he chose to not be a hero and not be a killer. But in this one, because like we have mentioned, it's not the song of Achilles. I had to see Achilles as more of like the killer that he's actually portrayed as in all other forms of the story. Yeah. And, you know, even in the song of Achilles, when he goes and kills Breezy's family and the entire village, for some reason, I was able to gloss over that, even though I really shouldn't have. But yeah, I don't know. I like to imagine that he wasn't destined to be, but he definitely was. He definitely enjoyed it once he got that like bloodlust going. Yeah. Um, yeah, I also wanted to say no because yeah, the life that I wanted for him was the one where he and Patroclus grew old together in peace. But I think that the gods would have made it happen regardless. Knowing that he ends up regretting his decision to die a famous warrior, I don't think it was necessarily in his nature. I don't think that he was born to be a killer, but I guess I do believe he was destined to be one, if that makes sense. Yeah, the way that the gods are portrayed in this one and seeing how much of their influence was like behind everything, Mm -hmm. it does make it seem more like he was forced down that path. Yeah, like even, I don't Again, I don't know if it's this book or the Iliad, but there's lots of times where the gods just like inject their power into people in fights and make them go insane with killing. Yeah. Even if they're not really like they did that to Patroclus. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's yeah. what happened to Patroclus was the gods kicked up his fighting fury and and he he went he went for it. So but in the Song of Achilles, it's not really portrayed that way because Patroclus is just like, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Have yeah. you read other books about the Trojan War? If so, did they influence your enjoyment of this book at all? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys heard of a book called The Song of Achilles? Uh, Yes. Yes, I have read that one. (laughs) Yeah, this was an easy one. Uh, Obviously, we've read The Song of Achilles, and I also keep mentioning the Iliad. And I think that reading them before reading this book really helped with my enjoyment of it, but it also helped me understand the events a little bit more. I was already invested in the characters when I picked this book up, and I could see that it might have been a harder book to grasp onto if I wasn't. Yeah, totally. 100%. But it also made me want to read way more books about the Trojan War. Like, I'm still super interested. Yes, this was a good middle book. Mm -hmm. What did you think of the choice to give Penelope a voice through her letters to Odysseus? Um, Usually, like I said, I really hate letters and books, but Penelope was one of my favorite perspectives. I had so much fun with her, and it really let us get to hear Odysseus's story as well. And I love him too, except for when he's being an idiot. Yes, and I really love the epistolary format in books, as I've mentioned before. So I thought it was great. I was surprised to find that most of our listeners that we heard from disliked Penelope's chapters the most. I was like, what? She wasn't that bad, but no. Natalie Haynes is actually a comedian, and she narrated the audiobook, so I wonder if some of her comedic style came through in Penelope's parts, and that made them more funny to us, maybe? People seem to think that she was a bit of a whiner, and her story didn't matter quite as much as the other women, but you know what? Being at home for 20 years, just 
waiting for your damn husband, who's acting like an idiot, to come home, I too would write some very sassy letters. Right. Plus, pain is pain. Yeah. You can't be like, oh, Penelope, you didn't suffer enough. So that's that's what Pharaoh would say. <laughs> that is what Pharaoh would say. <laughs> so what are your final thoughts? Yeah, like I said, I really enjoyed it. I thought that it was a great companion read to The Song of Achilles and the Iliad. So I would definitely recommend this book to people who have read those books. And also those books to someone who has read this one. We have heard of people having a hard time with this book if they didn't have any prior knowledge about Greek mythology. Even I did quite a bit of Googling of who people were when I was confused. Sometimes I would be starting a chapter and then I'd be like, who the heck is this? But then the story surrounding it, like, oh, okay, this is Agamemnon's daughter. Mm -hmm. Dang. Yeah. I think that this is a really important perspective to have, like hearing from the women. We hear a lot about the men who fight in war, but really the women who survive or don't survive the wars are just as much heroes as the men who fight in them. The difference is, I think that a lot of times women just don't have any choice in any of it or anything that happens after. There is one quote that says, in war, men lose their lives, but women lose everything else. And I just think that quote really sums up this book so perfectly. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us for book club. We recorded this episode a little bit early this month so that we could be sure that I would be able to make it just in case the baby came before we were able to get to it. So we don't actually know yet what book club book is going to be for June. June is Pride Month, so we do know that it is going to be a book written by an LGBTQ author. Each of our members is going to put a book in the hat this weekend, and then we will draw. As soon as we know, we will announce it on our socials, so keep an eye out for that. You can find us at best underscore book club everywhere, but we are mostly on Instagram. Also, if you have any really great LGBTQ book recommendations that you would like to see put in the hat, we would love to hear them. Yes, please send us those recs. You can email them to us at best underscore book club at outlook.com. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.